Good morning. So I'm going to start with a question today. I want to ask you how many of you remember your very first ever deliberate lie? No hands are going up in the room? One. Bethany, my daughter. I can remember my very first deliberate lie. I was four years old. I was in kindergarten. I'd been enrolled in an after-school weekly swimming program, and it was unimaginable terror to me because my swimming instructor, his philosophy of teaching us how to swim was to throw us into the deep end, sink or swim, and I sank every single time. And um, I was really under the impression that I was going to drown and so in order to escape this weekly trauma, a temptation came to me one day at the tender age of four, an idea that I could lie. I could actually say something that could change my situation. So I went to my teacher and I said, you know what, Mrs. Miller, um, I have a really bad cold today and my mother said that I don't have to go swimming. And incredibly, she bought the lie. So I was pretty empowered by that. And afterwards, when my mother came to pick me up, I went running to her and I pulled my beautifully wrapped towel and bathing suit out of my little red plaid swimming bag. And I ran to her and I said, look, mommy, I had such a great time swimming and my towel and my bathing suit are already dry. And she took one look at me, marched me back to Mrs. Miller. And when she found out what had actually transpired, she spanked me all the way from the kindergarten door to the car, which was way down the block. And I will never forget, I can still feel it, as she walloped me, my little body would leave the pavement. And um, it was a scene I will never forget, my very first temptation to do a wrong thing that I remember, but not my last temptation. The great reformationist Martin Luther you can see if you go to his castle in Germany where he had a room in Wartburg, Germany, there's a big ink stain on the wall where he was reputed to have thrown his inkwell at the wall because the devil had come to tempt him to do something wrong, and so he threw his inkwell at the wall. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a little four-year-old girl or you're the great reformationist Martin Luther, we are all tempted at some point in our lives, if not every day, to do wrong things. It's a normal part of life. Temptation itself is not sin. Sin is where we go with the temptations that we face. And how we handle the seemingly smallest, most insignificant temptations in our lives actually can determine how we face the larger temptations of our lives, especially in those defining moments. This morning we're going to continue our study of the book of Matthew. So we're going to be in Matthew 4 today, and we're going to be talking about a time in Jesus' life when he faced a siege of temptation. And so this message is called Behind Enemy Lines. So if you would turn, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew, and we're actually going to start in the chapter 3, verse 16, and we're going to go straight into chapter 4, because actually... There are no separations in the Bible. They're just there for our convenience. So starting at 3, verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after fasting for forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, and he said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, All of these things I will give to you. And if you fall down and worship me, then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Before we get into the meat of trying to understand these temptations, I want to just start by making three comments. The first one is this, Satan is real. His name is Diabolos here, which literally means the accuser, the false accuser. Revelations 12 tells us that he's the deceiver of the whole world, and he's actually at war with the children of God. He's a deceiver. He's a tempter. And once he tempts you, if you succumb, then he's an accuser. He's a real enemy with real power. And here, in this wilderness, Jesus fights with the enemy himself, who is trying to cause him to veer off course for the race that's marked out for him. Our destiny was riding on this very battle. Secondly, this time of temptation was not initiated by the devil. It was initiated by God. It was God's idea and agenda, and Jesus submitted to it. The very same Holy Spirit that caused the birth of Jesus that came upon Mary in chapter 1, the very same Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus at his baptism, which we just read, was the very same Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And Jesus, you notice, doesn't say anything in words of protest. He doesn't say, look, wait just a minute. Why are you leading me here? I have things to do. I have a ministry to begin. I have miracles to perform. I have healings to do. I have preaching to do. Why are you leading me into the wilderness? He didn't say any of that. He just submitted to the process of God in his life. Thirdly, The purpose was to test. And Jesus was not immune to temptation just because he was the son of God. The literal meaning of that word tempt is test. It's not that word that means trying to seduce you to do something evil. It's the word that really means to try, to prove. And what God was doing here was proving Jesus' character. How would he stand? How would he hold up? under these temptations because Satan would have tailor-made these temptations to strike at what would have been his weakest point. If Jesus wasn't temptable, Satan would not have wasted his breath and the Holy Spirit would not have brought him into that place of wilderness. 
So he was led from the glorious baptism in the Jordan River to the barren isolation of the wilderness called Jeshimon, which literally translated means the devastation. So there's Jesus walking in mile after mile of crumbling, jagged limestone rocks. I think we have a picture up here. There it is. Ridges of dust and furnace temperatures. And for all this time, he fasted days and nights. And at the end, when he was at the weakest point of starvation, the tempter came to him. Round one, the first temptation. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Satan wasn't casting doubt on whether Jesus was God's son. He was trying to create a scenario in which he would he would see how is Jesus going to express his sonship. It's not literally if, it's since you're the son of God, command these stones. Well, that seems pretty harmless, doesn't it? That's not too terribly wicked. Turning stones into bread. He comes over, Satan comes over with kind of a soft sell approach, almost like he's an objective, sort of helpful friend trying to help Jesus out. The desert was literally littered with these limestone rocks that kind of looked like bread, like loaves. And Jesus was in very rough shape at this point, not having eaten or drunk for 40 days. This was tempting. Just one loaf of bread from the rocks. He could do it. He certainly had the power to do it. We know that when you read a little bit ahead, his very first miracle he performed was he turned water into wine. He could surely turn a rock into bread. This was a temptation for Jesus. But remember, small things can determine the outcome of your course. What could it hurt? It could hurt the entire mission. The temptation really was for Jesus to exercise his status and power as the Son of God, to be self-reliant, self-serving. Satan's angle was, surely God, if you're God's son, you have the power to satisfy your own basic needs independently of your father. What's the big deal? Come on, Jesus, you're the son of God. Act like it. Push a divinity button. You're suffering. You should save yourself here. I mean, what good is it if you're dead? There will be no mission. Come on. But there's a subtle, more deeper inference here. Is your father, God, really leaving you here in this desert to die of starvation? I don't see his provision anywhere. I can't be very loving. Come on, Jesus. Turn this rock into some bread. Satan was urging Jesus to use his sonship in a way that was inconsistent with the mission. Was Jesus going to cater to his own needs and defy the principle on which he lived, which was this, I only do what I see the Father doing. Jesus states in John chapter 5, I can do nothing on my own initiative. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The will of him who sent Jesus was for Jesus to suffer and die for a world that had gone wrong and he was to hang on a cross. Everything depended on Jesus' response right here, as small and subtle as the temptation seemed. In suffering and discomfort, what would Jesus choose? 
Would he trust his father and his father's position and provision, or would he deviate to self-interest? Because if he couldn't win this battle in discomfort, how could he ever face the cross? Well, thankfully, Jesus was not passive in his response. He quoted scripture. He said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Jesus' answer to the temptation of Satan was direct quotation from the word. Later in John chapter 4, we read this wonderful phrase. Jesus says to his disciples, my food is to do the will of my father and accomplish the work that he sent me to do. You know why he could say that? Because he established a beachhead behind enemy lines with this little battle here with the rocks. He won this battle, and so he could say, my food is to do the will of my father. The temptation was real, but he won. You know, we all have a race that's marked out for us. We all have a mission. Hebrews 12 tells us that. We each have a unique call from God, that he has prepared for us to walk in works. Ephesians 2.10 says that he's already prepared for us to walk in before we were even born. There's a scroll already written on your life. How will we walk, especially in those times when we feel like we're in discomfort or we might even be suffering or things aren't going our way or we just feel unhappy or just plain outright dissatisfied? Those seasons test us. What's in us? Will we doubt him? Will we doubt his love? Do we doubt his provision? Do we turn away from him? Do we do we go to things that nurture ourselves and comfort ourselves and find ways to give ourselves other more comfortable options for our lives and then potentially deviate off of the course that he's setting for us, missing the works that he's created for us to walk in? And can we say no to him? or say no to something we'd really like to do when he hasn't actually initiated it for our lives. In the in the couple of years, two or three years leading up to 2005, we went through quite a difficult time in this church. And churches do. They go through seasons. And this was a particularly difficult time. It was a time of turmoil. It was a time of transition. And honestly, it was a time of discontent. There was, you know, like a spirit of criticism in the air. I think Satan was very much at work. But God was already getting at things in our own hearts, too, as leaders. And for Ron and I personally, it was a very, very difficult time. And there were moments, actually. I mean, Ron used to call it the season of our humiliation. He used to say, Mary, just get low. Just get low. Just get low. And so we would. But I'll tell you, it was very painful. And there was days that we considered quitting finding something else to do that wasn't so hard and didn't make us feel so vulnerable, so fragile, and so exposed. And there would be no more open season of criticism on leaders, and sometimes leaders go through that. This was our season. So the idea of sort of saying, okay, you know what? We're done here. It's been 25 years. We're good. Because actually, pastor turnover rate is a lot shorter than that. So 25 years is good. We can go back to Vancouver now. And this just became like a real palatable, that means, what does that mean? That means just, I really wanted to do this. Just leave. But that's really hard to do when you're the pastor's wife. It's hard to leave the church. So I was in a bind. And I remember one day I just sat down in the living room and I was just crying and I was just saying, Lord, please can we leave? Please can we just leave? Isn't it enough now? 
And this is why, ladies and gentlemen, that it is so, so critical for us as the children of God to learn how to hear his voice. And if we flog this hearing God course for you to take, it's because we want you to know how to hear him. Because if you don't know how to hear him, you'll never be able to navigate the difficult periods in your life where you want to turn to the left and you want to turn to the right. And God's saying, no, I just want you to go straight ahead and you want you to stay the course. So as I sat there, weeping and whining before the Lord, he spoke these words to me. He said, Mary, if I ask you to stay for the next 25 years, would you do it? And the wonderful, glorious thing about God is that when he asks you to do something and he talks to you personally, he downloads the grace to obey. Because it's a work of the Holy Spirit, right? He talks to you and he makes you able. He enables you to respond And in that moment, I said, yes, Lord, if you want me to stay for the next 25 years, it didn't look good, it didn't feel good, but I said yes because there was grace to say yes. It doesn't have to look like the way I want it to. And it was it was shortly after that, I was sitting on the couch again, and I was just asking the Lord about some things, and we were thinking about what to do one Christmas. And the Holy Spirit said, how about you do a living nativity at church? And I was like, yeah, okay. And he goes, not a small one, a big one. And Bethlehem Live was born. You see, because there was a mission set before us as a church, for those of you that don't know about Bethlehem Live, I'll talk to you about it afterwards. It's a really big deal. It's a really big thing. We did it for 10 years, and in that 10 years' time, almost 60,000 people heard the gospel. Hundreds of people made decisions to follow Christ. You see, because God had a path, but he did want to use me in it, and I did play a part in it. But I couldn't have played a part in it if I had cut and run, because God had something for me to put my hand to. He wasn't finished with me here at Gateway. I'm so glad. I really am very, very glad. What a privilege to still be here. And we got through the glitch. Walking with God in the seasons of discomfort and making choices not to cut and run, make a way for his mission to go forward in our lives. And he gets the glory and the fruit. Jesus is not unfamiliar or unsympathetic with the battles that we face, and he's walked it himself, and he can keep us in it. But then there was round two. Here's where Satan ramps things up. Jesus used the word, so well then Satan used the word too. The devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Wow, what a display for a Messiah. The temple was built high on Mount Zion on a flattened plateau. And the highest point of the temple overlooked a dizzying 450-foot drop way down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. And that's where Satan took him and said, jump. Again, this was a test of how Jesus would walk out his sonship. Satan's angle was this. If you're really the object of your father's special love, let him prove it. Put the promises of God to the test. How are they going to hold up? Will they hold you up? 
I mean, that would be spectacular for the Son of God to launch his ministry and have instant prestige. If he could leap down and land unharmed, born by a legion of angels, he could wow the crowds and show off people would follow him for sure. There would be no obscurity. Remember, he was born in obscurity. He'd lived for 30 years in complete obscurity. And he was about to go through some uncomfortable days. He didn't have to. He didn't have to live with ambiguity as to who he was. Surely, this is the Son of God. Remember, the temptation is real. Or Satan wouldn't have bothered. It's far more convincing to gather a crowd through the spectacular than it is through suffering and hanging on a cross. People might miss the point if you hang on a cross like a common criminal. But oh, if you throw yourself off the temple now, that's, that's God stuff. But the test was even deeper. Satan was tempting Jesus to challenge God's faithfulness. Come on, Jesus, put him to the test. And he was doing it with a verse from scripture. Interesting. Satan can take scripture and distort it. He pulled Psalm 91 out of context, and then he twisted it to tailor it, to touch something in Jesus that would make him want to lunge for it. And we can do that with scripture too. We can take verses out of context and use them for our own ends. And actually, in those circumstances, Satan can use them too. We call it parachuting into the Bible. And we can do this thing. We go, oh, you know, we don't really know this book very well, but I think I should probably get something from this book because I'm really going through some stuff right now. And my life is this or my life is that. So I really need God to speak to me. don't really want to learn how God to speak to me. I just want an instant, right? Parachute. God, speak to me about my marriage because I'm really in trouble right now. Oh, Jeremiah 3, verse 8. And I gave faithless Israel a certificate of divorce and sent her away. Oh, I think the Lord is speaking to me. I should divorce my spouse. We laugh but it's happened. That's an extreme example. But we do that thing. And instead of coming to know this book inside and out and know the God of this book and the God in this book and the God who is this book because he is the word made flesh, we just dip superficially. We even do that in our devotional life. And I'm not, I'm not dissing other people's devotionals because I think they're wonderful. I think they're extraordinary. But if that's all we do is every day we read somebody else's devotional about God, we're getting their diet, not our own. We're getting what God says to them, not what God says to us. Because he has something to say to you and he has a mission marked out for you and it's tailor-made for you and it's not what maybe Oswald Chambers says, although I love Oswald Chambers. Just saying. We need to know this book. How he thinks, how he works. This was Jesus' response. He says to the devil, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. His trust in his father was steadfast. God didn't have to do anything to prove who he was to Jesus. 
He knew the father intimately, and he wasn't going to act recklessly and expect God to back him up. Making is this about his own ego, will and glory would have deviated him off course. God the Father was not there to serve Jesus' agenda. Jesus had come to this earth to serve God's agenda. He was going to be a servant king. And we would applaud Jesus' decision to do that, but we tend to fall prey to this kind of idea all the time. We have needs, or we have desires, or we have demands, or we have expectations of how God should do things in our lives, and when they don't line up, then we get mad, and we blame God. We make decisions independently sometimes, and then we expect God to back them up and can't believe it when he doesn't. We have our own ideas. We read things in this, in the word and in our own small ability to interpret it. We think God should back it up in a certain way, but we haven't really understood it in the first place. And we get all bent out of shape. And we think God should do things our way. And we put him on trial and we put him to the test. And we blame him when we say, well, I don't have any faith anymore. But the problem is we shipwrecked our own faith. God doesn't have to do things our way. And God didn't have to do things Jesus' way. And Jesus wasn't going to put him to the test. Many years ago, my mother, who I loved dearly, she was my closest friend, got cancer. And it was clear that she was dying. Well, I had the scriptures to back up that God heals, that Jesus heals. And and he does. I totally believe that. I've seen it. So I had things lined up, and I knew how this thing was going to go down. But three years into it, I realized that this wasn't going to happen. And it really shook me to the core because I thought, wait a minute, God, isn't this who you are? And isn't this what you're supposed to do? And aren't you supposed to do these things the way I think you're supposed to do them? But God apparently wasn't interested in the way I thought things should go. And I remember one day there was just such a crisis moment for me. I went into my room and I was saying, God, I don't even know if I know who you are anymore. And I could feel myself withdrawing because I was so filled with doubt. And I was so filled with disappointment with him. And into the room walked our little Bethany, who was at that point three years old. It was her birthday. She couldn't speak very much. In fact, hardly at all. In fact, nothing because she had three older sisters who did all the talking for her. She was one of those children. So any long sentence would have been a miracle. But this child walked into the room with her new baby in her arms, little doll, and she wasn't even particularly noticing me, but she was singing a song, and it pricked my ears because I thought, A, she doesn't speak, B, she doesn't sing. And the words to the song were, My ways are not your ways. She sang. And I turned and she sang it again. My ways are not your ways. And then she added, And my thoughts are not your thoughts. If you don't know that verse, it's a verbatim word of God text from Isaiah chapter 55 that a child who didn't speak English or sing was just quoting randomly out into the air where I was. But the Holy Spirit broke into my life and he said, I'll tell you something, this isn't going to go your way. It's going to go my way. I get it. It's not about your scriptures. It's not about your hopes. not about your 
And he loves me in it. I felt loved in it. Trust me. This is about me. It's about my agenda. And at that moment, I could give over my worship. I could, you know, it's that thing about, that word came to me this morning, you know, drenching his throne with your tears. You can drench his throne with your tears because he knows better than you do. And he's on the throne. You can drench that throne with your worship in the midst of it. Jesus loved and trusted his father. He wanted relationship with his father more than the things that God could do for him. Do we want relationship with God more than the things God can do for us? Did I want God more than I wanted my mother to be healed? I made a decision that day to want God more than I wanted my own will. That's what Jesus did. God didn't have to do anything for Jesus, for Jesus to prove his love. Round three. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And by now, Satan knows that his attempts at subtlety are not working. And the gloves came off. And remember, this was a temptation to Jesus or he wouldn't have wasted his breath. But this was the biggest test In Psalm 2, verse 8, if you scroll back, it says this, God's telling Jesus prophetically, he says, Ask of me, and I'm going to give you the nations of your for your heritage and the ends of the earth for your possession. That's what God said to Jesus in Psalm verse 2. This was the Father's plan all along to give this to Jesus. This was coming his way. But not so that Jesus could have an earthly kingdom. It was so that God could have a kingdom through the work of Christ on the cross by bringing the nations to him. That was the plan. Forgiving and redeeming a fallen word through the sacrifice and the shedding of his own blood. But here, Satan is offering it to Jesus with one little twist. If you bow down to me, You can have it now. Instantly, without waiting. Easily, without suffering. You can have it cheaply, without the cross. Oh. You can have a shortcut to glory without the agony of getting there. The kingdom's all for you. Just worship me. The devil does offer what is temporary. Immediate gratification, immediate satisfaction, but God is after what is bigger, more important, and eternal. What are the shortcuts, the easy roads we're taking when God has called us to be patient, to be self-sacrificing, maybe to love when it hurts us incredibly, to endure even when we want to cut and run and feel relief? What's the mission we're here for on earth, and have we settled for something less? Jesus' words were emphatic. Away from me, he said. Resolute. He hadn't come for an earthly glory. He purposed to walk in the path of incalculable suffering out of his love for the Father. He could have chosen another way, but he didn't. He had a world to forgive, not a kingdom to build for himself. And how thankful are we that he chose the path of the cross or you and I would not be seating here today. Matthew 4 begins with this painless promise from Satan. 
You, you will get all of this, all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory if you worship me. Jesus said no. Matthew 28, the final chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus says these glorious, unbelievable words, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Why? Because he walked the path of the cross. And he took you and I with him. Immediately, the devil left him and the angels came to minister to him. The purpose of testing was accomplished. He was fully established and rooted in obedience to the Father, poised for the mission and able to fully identify with us. Most of you probably sitting here would never would say, I have never been tempted to turn a stone into bread. I have never been tempted to suicidally jump from a 450-foot cliff and try to land. And I have never been com- tempted to commit myself to being a Satan worshiper. But we can all relate to what those temptations touched in Jesus, and we face those things daily. And we need to remember that the enemy has schemes, and they're to take us out. The enemy's real, and so is temptation. Jesus was tested because of the plans of God riding on him. We will be tested because there are plans in the heart of God riding on us. And how do we fight and prevail? Number one, we have a Savior who understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses and has been tempted in absolutely everything as we are. That's what Hebrews tells us. There's not anyone in this room who's had any temptation that Jesus does not understand. Knowing this and following his example gives us courage to do the same. Secondly, we have the word of God. This book, let's dust it off. It's a weapon. Because the battleground for temptations is right here in our minds. And if we don't know what this book says, we can't use it at the appropriate times. This book is called the Sword of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit takes what's in here and uses it as a weapon when we declare it. That's how that becomes a weapon. But if you don't know it, it remains a sword in its sheath. But this book helps us in our temptation. Are you fearful? Memorize a scripture. Isaiah 41, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you all. I will uphold you with my righteousness. Are you struggling with lust? Galatians 5.16, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Why does that help you? Because when you quote it, you remember what's true. You remember there is a Holy Spirit. You remember he has power. You remember that he's far bigger than you. You remember that you have to walk. If you walk in the Spirit, why? Where are you walking? You're walking in the purposes of God for your life. You're walking on the path that he's marked out for you. And what happens when you stop walking or you walk to the left or you walk to the right? But you have a Holy Spirit who's with you to help you walk. You have the temptation to lust. Remember, those small things can take you down. Those small choices succumbed to can affect the ones that are the defining destiny changers of your life. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Do you struggle with anxiety? Trust in the Lord, Proverbs says. 
with all your heart. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. Make your request known to God. That is an invitation. Oh yeah, Lord, I'm anxious. Quote the scripture. Take out the weapon of the Spirit and then submit it to him. And the final last thing is that going back to the very place we started this morning, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus' baptism. The heavens opened. The Spirit of God descended on Jesus and affirmed his sonship. When we receive the gift of God's forgiveness, we receive eternal life through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. God gives us the right to become his sons and his daughters. We become the children of God. What happened over Jesus in the affirmation of sonship was heaven opened. What happens over you when you receive that sonship, becoming a daughter and a son of the king? Guess what? Heaven's opened. Do you know that when those heavens opened over Jesus, they never shut? The heavens didn't go, oh, quick, send the dove down and then back up. No, the Holy Spirit rested on him. That heaven stayed open. Jesus lived his entire next three years once that spirit had descended in the power of the Holy Spirit. That wilderness experience, he went out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Never left him. Guess what, ladies and gentlemen? We have that same spirit. We have the same sonship. We have the same open heaven. There is no closed heaven over you today if you know Jesus Christ. You have all the authority you need as a son and daughter. You have every provision that you need as a son and daughter. Every resource of heaven is available to you. Jesus prevailed. He accomplished the work of his father. He died, he rose again, and he brought us back into relationship with him. May the Holy Spirit increase his insight into our hearts today and give us understanding as to what this means for us personally. What is God saying to you? What is God saying to me about the race marked out for us? What can we take personally, individually, and what can we take corporately as a family on mission from what happened to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4? What does he want to say to us as we move forward and apprehend all that for which God apprehended us? Amen.